This is week six of our series, Unimpressed, as Mike mentioned. And in this series, we're looking at reasons why many people are unimpressed with Jesus and choose not to follow him. And specifically, we're looking at seven beliefs that if you hold these beliefs, it is likely that Christianity will be pretty unimpressive to you. And the seven are these. Uh, The first one we dealt with was that Christians are hypocrites. Then we talked about there cannot be only one way to God. The next belief we looked at was that people must have the freedom to define themselves. And then we said people uh, should be free to live as they see fit as long as they don't harm anyone. And uh, last week, we talked about the belief that the Bible is just another religious text written by humans. So those five are the ones we've already covered. Um, If you uh, missed any of those and they sound interesting to you, you can hear our past sermons at www.clearwater.church or on our Clearwater Church app on your phone. Um, The final two issues we're going to be talking about are today's topic, if there is a God, He is loving and couldn't possibly send people to hell. And then next week, Pastor Mike will finish up this series uh, dealing with the, the belief that arguing that someone's beliefs or behaviors are wrong diminishes them as a person. So all of these are pretty tough issues. But uh, the one we're dealing with this week, I think, is one of the toughest for us. Um, that is, if there is a God, He is loving and couldn't possibly send anyone to hell. See, the doctrine of hell is a very tough one to embrace. That God will send some people into a fiery hell is something that many people just don't want to believe. And it seems contrary to the idea that Jesus loves us and cares about us. How can a loving, good, forgiving, and kind God send people to hell. Before we look at the Scripture, let's just pray for a moment. Our Heavenly Father, we ask You now that You would give us wisdom on this topic, open our hearts to hear what Your Word has to say to us, give us humility Uh, to accept what your word says and to speak the truth to our friends and neighbors uh, with humility. Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So the Scripture says, uh, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So this kind of God that loves us and inspires us to love one another, uh, that's the kind of God that appeals to many people. And that's good because that is the the real God who actually exists. God is love, and He also wants us to be loving. But for many people, that just doesn't seem to fit with the doctrine of hell. And even for a lot of Christians who are committed to believing what the Bible teaches, we'd rather not think about or talk about uh, uh, hell. We'd, We'd much rather talk about heaven and how God wants us all to be there and has made it possible for us 
to go to heaven, and we don't really want to talk about hell and how God's going to send some people there. And, and me too. I mean, I, I get that. Uh, hell is a tough thing to be comfortable with. And in fact, uh, 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 you know, we should believe it, we should accept it, but I'm not sure we should be comfortable with it. The doctrine of hell is not meant to make us comfortable. One of the books that I read to prepare this message is called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. And uh, I really recommend that book. Chan does a really great job of dealing with this topic. Um, the first line of the introduction to the book, he says this, If you are excited to read this book, you have issues. <laughs> and then Chan goes on to talk about how it's important to understand what the Bible teaches about hell, but we should not be excited about it. Hell is not something that we should feel comfortable or excited about. Those of us who believe in hell should do so with a sense of the tragedy that makes this kind of punishment necessary. We should be saddened by the sin that causes people to be destined for hell. And when we talk about hell, uh, when you do get into a conversation with somebody, here's the first thing that I suggest talking about as we um, seek to explain this, uh, this doctrine to someone who is skeptical of it. And the first talking point is that it is good for God to enact judgment against sin. Now, at this point, we're not arguing specifically that hell is a just punishment for sin, only that it is good that God should enact judgment against sin. And this is, you know, a very clear teaching of the Bible that, uh, that God does bring about justice, that in the end, all sins will receive their just reward. Uh, the prophet Nahum is a good example of this. He has, delivers a message of God's judgment against the evil nation of Nineveh. They were a nation who had raised up a strong army that had ruthlessly conquered many of the nations around them, killing, raping, plundering as they built their empire. And here's what the prophet says. He says, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He says, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, and never without victims. You see, God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And that goes for me and you and the ancient Ninevites, and the people in these next three stories that I'm going to mention. Uh, you guys have seen these guys. I don't know that there's really much I can say about them. You know the story already. They chose to kill thousands of innocent people by crashing four passenger jets into buildings. But God will bring them to justice. This next guy maybe is not uh, quite as well-known. His name is Dylan Roof. And on the evening of July, or sorry, June 17th, 2015, Dylan walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. They were having a Bible study at the church. And the church members saw him come in. They welcomed him in. 
and they continued with their prayers. And Dylan sat there in the prayer meeting for a few minutes after he arrived, and then he pulled out a handgun and opened fire and killed nine people, including the pastor of the church and a state senator who was there for prayers. And his motivation was racism. He thought that by killing these people in this black church that he could start a new civil war in which white supremacists would be able to assert their dominance over blacks. And God will bring justice to Dylan Roof. Here's the next guy here. I don't know if you recognize him. Uh, his name is, he is a doctor named uh, Larry Nasser, and he was the National Medical Coordinator for USA Gymnastics from 1996 until 2014. And during that time, he sexually molested at least 250 young women and girls who were his patients. And God will bring justice to Larry Nasser. And when we think about people like these, uh, we want justice. We want to see them face the consequences. And these guys that we just talked about, uh, most of them have, or all of those guys, have faced certain consequences for their actions, right? The hijackers all died in their attack. Uh, both uh, Roof and Nasser are in prison right now. Um, but a martyr's death was what the hijackers wanted. And, and we all know that the criminal justice system often fails to really bring about justice. And what about all those people, not these few that we mentioned as examples, but what about all the people who molest children or rape their dates or rob the poor and are never caught? What about Ugandan warlord Joseph Kony? He enslaved thousands of child soldiers and forced them to kill for him, and he's never been caught. He's still out there in the jungle somewhere in Uganda. It is good that God will bring these people to justice. They will not get away with their crimes because the Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. But how does God, as the punisher of sins, fit with uh, the God who is love? Well, there is no conflict between the idea that God is love and the fact that God will enact justice. In fact, it is God's love that makes his role as the punisher of sins necessary. And if you think about that, what would it mean if God looked at Larry Nasser and said, I don't mind what he's done. I'm just going to let it slide. What he did to all those girls, not my problem. Would a God who said that be a good and loving God? It is because God loves and cares about all those girls that he is going to punish Larry Nasser for what he did to them. It is because God loves and cares for all the people who died on 9-11 that he is going to enact justice on those hijackers. It is God's love that makes it impossible for him to allow the guilty to go unpunished. Timothy Keller, in his uh, very excellent book, The Reason for God, where he has a chapter on this topic that we're talking about today, recommended if you uh, want to look that up, Timothy Keller, The Reason for God. Anyway, in his chapter, he quotes 
a Yale theologian named Miroslav Volf. Uh, Volf is a Croatian, and when he was living in Croatia, he witnessed uh, much of the tremendous violence in the ethnic wars that took place in the Balkans back in the early 90s. Um, and here's what Wolf wrote about that. He said, If God were not angry at the injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. And he says, my thesis that nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. He says, it takes the, suburb, uh, the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, this idea will invariably die. So Wolf has seen terrible things, and he says, God must judge. What he's saying is that it's only when we have confidence that God will bring about judgment that we can give up the idea of retribution and retaliation on our own hand. And he had seen that and all the terrible consequences of it in his homeland. The people who committed those atrocities in those wars will be brought to justice, but it will not be by retaliatory strikes by opposing military forces. That just leads to a continuation of the cycle of violence. But when we believe that God will bring justice, then we can have confidence that justice will be done. Why is it better for God to be the one who brings justice? Well, because man's justice is flawed and God's justice is perfect. People often lack both the ability to judge justly what should be done and often also the power to do it. But God lacks neither. His justice is perfect. You see, when the Bible says that God is love, that is a true statement. God is love, but that is not all that God is. The Bible also says God is a righteous judge, a God who displays His wrath every day. And it says the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against Him. And the Bible says that in the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared he is more awesome than all who surround him. And God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The point is, God is love, but he is more than love. God's love and justice and mercy and faithfulness and wrath and grace are all part of who He is, and they are not in conflict. So, coming back to our original statement, 
if there is a God, He is loving and couldn't possibly send anyone to hell. Well, there, yes, there is a God, and yes, He is loving, and He also can send some people to hell. So our first talking point is uh, only that it is good for God to enact justice on sin. But it is quite possible for people to grant that point and still have a problem with the doctrine of hell. And here's why. When it comes to punishing people in hell, the punishment seems to be way out of balance with the crime. Justice requires that punishments fit the crime. You don't put someone in jail for 10 years for littering. You don't put people to death for shoplifting. Uh, you, you have to have balance between the, the crime that has been done or the, 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 uh, the wrong that's been done and the consequence. And that, of course, is an idea that God teaches us in the Bible. The law, the biblical law in Exodus, states that when someone is injured uh, because of the negligence of someone else or the, the, uh, someone else causes the injury, then the consequence should be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And the point of that is, uh, is that it is a prohibition of excessive violence, excessive vengeance. You can't say, you attacked me and you broke my finger, therefore I'm going to cut off your arm, and then we'll be even. No, uh, the biblical law also puts limits on financial retribution. In financial cases, uh, the law says that the person who has done financial damage must pay back double what they have uh, harmed the other person. But, but the point is, it's not 10 times as much or 100 times as much. Uh, the consequence must be commensurate with the harm that was done. That is justice. But that's the problem with the doctrine of hell. Hell seems to be so terrible that it weighs very, very heavily on one side of the scale. What sin must people commit to deserve hell? The traditional view of hell is that it is a never-ending place of severe suffering. And it is severe suffering that's often described by fire, and it goes on forever. And we say that it is good for God to enact justice against sin, but hell does not look like justice. Hell is too terrible, too awful. And if we combine the traditional view of hell as a place of eternal torment with the traditional view that it is the destiny of all who do not put their faith in Jesus, it can really seem out of balance. This would mean that a Buddhist monk who lives his life trying to deny his own evil desires and to do good to everyone and uh, takes pains to avoid harming any living thing, because he follows the teachings of Buddhism rather than Christianity, he is punished eternally in hell. Or we all know people who are not Christians, but they're pretty nice people. You know, they aren't perfect, they aren't saints, but, uh, but they're generally pretty nice. 
do they end up in everlasting fire? 9-11 hijackers? Okay, we can see that. Larry Nasser? Yeah, maybe we can, we can understand that. But my friendly neighbor, who's not a Christian? It's easy to see how people can see this as an unjust over-punishment. This is not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is seemingly small harm resulting in an infinite consequence. We want God to bring justice, but sometimes this doesn't look like justice. So, what do we say to this objection? What can we say? Well, our second talking point is to insist that God's scales of justice are always in balance. Um, it might not look like it to uh, someone who's looking at it, but we know that He is in balance. And there are three lines of thinking that can help us to see that God's justice is always just. The first two are a reassessment of the weights of both sides of the scale. Sometimes we look at it and we think, oh man, hell is so heavy and the sin is so light. But maybe we should take a better look at both sides of those things and see uh, what, uh, what they really look like. So first, let's take a look at the punishment side. Some people have looked at this and said, well, hell can't be as bad as the traditional view presents it to be. So maybe there is some lesser punishment that is, is, is happening here. And, uh, and, and there really are a lot of misunderstandings about hell, um, and uh, there are a lot of non-biblical ideas that are believed by many people. Uh, so maybe some of our traditional views are really not supported by the Bible. So let's take a good look and see what it actually says. Uh, oh, for instance, there is this common idea, right, that Satan is the ruler of hell and that he and his demons will be there as the torturers who are torturing people who are cast into hell, or even that the realm of hell is some kind of a balancing force against the realm of heaven, and Satan and God are rivals who are in some kind of competition together uh, and battle against each other. Uh, none of that is taught in the Bible. Uh, these are ideas from pagan mythology that have slipped into our culture. The Bible actually teaches that hell was created by God as a place to punish Satan and his demons, and that they will be tormented there just as much as any people who are put in there with them. This is in his prophecy about the end of the age. This is what uh, the, the prophet John wrote. He said, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So if the devil is not the ruler of hell but a fellow prisoner there, maybe some of the other ideas about hell that we have are also not what the Bible actually teaches. For instance, are the images of fire meant to be taken literally? Is it actual combustion that's taking place in hell, the chemical process? Probably not. Uh, that's probably a, uh, a picture meant to describe suffering. However, if it's not literal fire, uh, which I don't know, maybe it is, uh, 
Even if it's not, it doesn't really help us very much because if it's a, if it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something pretty terrible, some pretty severe suffering. So we can't really lighten the scale by saying that it's not actual fire. A more promising line is to recognize that there are several places in the Bible where it seems to teach that there will be differentiation of punishments in hell. That is, not everyone there will be suffering the same. And here are a couple of places where Jesus seems to say that there will be different levels of suffering. First, it's when Jesus told people who saw him do many miracles with their own eyes, but they still refused to believe in him. And he said, I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That seems to, to, to indicate that uh, differentiation. It's more bearable for some than for others. In another place, Jesus tells a parable about some disobedient slaves who receive punishment from their master. And at the end of the parable, he says this. He says, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. So passages like this are not perfectly clear, uh, but they seem to indicate that even in hell, there will be some kind of distinguishing and differentiation uh, of the levels of punishment so that the scales of justice will be balanced. It's not the same punishment no matter what the, the crime was. People in hell will be punished according to what they deserve. Another question that many have asked is whether hell is really eternal conscious torture. Is there evidence in the Bible that rather than experiencing a never-ending hell, the condemned are actually destroyed in hell? Their punishment is eternal in the sense that it's not temporary. Those who go there uh, never come out of it and go to heaven. But maybe uh, at the same time they don't actually spend eternity in hell, they simply cease to exist. This has been called the doctrine of annihilationism. And if it's true, then that uh, would take some weight off of the balance uh, of hell, or in that balance of justice. So where do Christians who hold this view see biblical support? Well, one place is uh, in the book of Revelation where they're describing the destiny of sinners in the lake of fire, and they call it the second death. And second death sounds like a permanent end to existence rather than an eternal life of punishment in hell. Another place is when Jesus warned us, uh, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So to destroy both the body and the soul sounds like annihilation, not permanent existence. And there are other places where the Bible seems to leave the door open for this idea of, uh, of annihilationism. However, there are also quite a few places in the Bible where the description of hell seems to indicate an eternal conscious punishment. For instance, that one we looked at a few minutes ago from the book of Revelation where it describes the lake of fire as a place where Satan and those cast in with him will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
That doesn't sound like they will, it will ever end. And then there's a number of passages like this one where Jesus warns people about hell. He says that they could be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, that sounds like an everlasting conscious punishment. And we're not going to look at all the evidence here this morning, but on the whole, the biblical evidence seems to support the traditional view that people in hell will be aware of their torture forever. And I'd say that the biblical evidence gives us a fairly high level of certainty that this is the case. But in my opinion, it's not a totally airtight case. And if you are interested in this topic and you study the biblical evidence and you come to the conclusion that you're comfortable with the idea of annihilationism, that could really be a help to you in uh, balancing the scales of God's justice in your mind. I have a good friend uh, here in town who understands God's justice this way. He says, no, 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 when non-Christians, they come to the end of their life, they're just gone. And uh, my friend Kerry, he's a great Christian guy. I fully believe I'm going to be in heaven with him forever. Uh, even though we disagree about this point. Um, so, that's our examination of the side of the scale of God's justice. And I believe that the Bible does teach that there will be lesser punishment who get cast into hell. It will be an eternal conscious punishment, which will be terrible. And that's still a pretty heavy weight on that side of the scale. So what about the other side of the scale? Is it true that the sins that people commit that send them to hell are light in comparison to the punishment that they get? Well, the Bible clearly says no. No, their sins are not light. Here's what the Bible says about human sinfulness. It says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's God's understanding of human sinfulness. But is that really a description of the nice older lady down the street who takes care of her flowers in her yard and makes them so nice and bakes cookies for her grandchildren and, and has never chosen to follow Jesus? It doesn't seem like a description of her to me. Uh, of course, the Bible is not saying that every single person fits every single word of this description, but the Bible is saying that that nice old woman, too, is sinful. And yes, you might say, oh, of course, yeah, she's sinful, nobody's perfect, but is she deserving of hell sinful? Well, God says yes. God says that your sinfulness and my sinfulness and the sinfulness of that nice person at work is much worse than we think it is. God says that we underestimate our guilt 
And God says that all of us are deserving of hell. And that brings up the third point in trying to see that God's scales of justice are balanced, even with hell on one side and what appears to us to be basically nice people on the other side. And that's, the third point is that God sees things differently than we do. God's understanding of these issues is different than ours. Whose understanding is better? Who sees the issues more clearly? Who knows the sins that people commit? Who puts the correct weight on those sins? Who understands what punishment in hell really entails? God tells us that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I admit that this might not be a very persuasive argument for the skeptic to simply say that we must trust God to do what's right. But it is the truth. When we look at the scales of God's justice and they don't seem to be balanced, we can do what we can to try to understand how our sins are really much greater than we think they are. And we can try to take a close look at those sins and see the true nature of our sin. And we can try to to look at hell and see if it's really out of balance. But in the end, whether it makes sense and seems right to us or not, He is God and we are not. God is just and we are not. Our own sense of right and wrong and what sins are worthy of what punishments is inferior to God's own understanding of justice. And lastly, I want to say this. I said a minute ago that God says that all people are deserving of hell. That includes me, and that includes you. But God does not want to send anyone to hell. God loves us all. And the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So if you haven't done it yet, put your faith in Jesus. Be saved from your sin. Talk to someone after the service about it. Pastor Mike or I would love to talk with you. Uh, many of the other people here are also qualified to explain things more fully, and, uh, and we would love to see you put your faith in Jesus. And for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus, and our destiny is eternal heaven with God, this topic should motivate us to help others to come to know this salvation too. Because if they continue to reject Jesus they will go to hell. 
And what greater motivation can we have to do what we can to persuade people to be saved? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are sobered by the reality of your justice. And we know that what you do is good and right. And I pray that you would help us to see the reality of our own sin so that we can understand more fully your justice. Heavenly Father, may we really be motivated to do everything we can to help people to put their faith in you so that they will be in heaven with us rather than facing the punishment for their sins. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.